uh, I should announce to the internet folks that we will be uh, we will be suspending service on the 6th of September, and we will be back on September the 13th. We have learned not to uh, compete with the incredible Alaska State Fair, and it's one cow and two horses and a piece of cabbage or whatever it's got out there, pig races. We can't compete against that, and so we take that weekend off. Actually, Lori and I are building a set of stairs so that we don't have to go downstairs to let our dogs out. So here we are, August the 30th, 2015, lecture discussion number 210 on the Book of Romans. And if you have been regularly attending this summer, and by regularly attending, I mean twice uh, once in June, once in August, then you might remember that I've been rummaging around in the room that mostly harbors the sign of the wife of YHVH. Uh, you want you want to call it Yahweh, I'll allow you, but un- know that it is the ineffable, ineffable name of God. It is non-pronounceable. So the wife of YHVH and the bride of Christ, two signs that are extraordinary uh, that we should all have great understanding of, or as they're more commonly referred to, the sign of the nation of Israel and the sign of the taken church. That's what I've been doing now for almost two months. Uh, That's the umbrella, if you will. And you also might remember that I've begun to present the case or the view or the position that the interdependence of the two signs demand that each sign is designed by God for the benefit of the other. Let me point that, uh, maybe make that more clear. It It is obvious that they are interdependent signs. They're intricately woven together. So that makes it obvious logically and by any other means of evaluation that one sign is for for the other, if that makes sense. In other words, the sign of the church is for Israel. The sign of Israel is for the church. And uh, the the incredible, miraculous rebirth of the nation of Israel uh, that follows the sign of world war. We finally had in the history of man world war. And uh, Christ said, after world war, you're going to begin to see the end of the age of the Gentiles, Matthew 24. That, so we have the nation of Israel sign follows that amazing sign of worldwide war. Um, that's the sign of Israel reborn. Is a one is a great fulfillment of prophecy, second only to the prophecies of Christ. That's the sign of the fig leaf, or the, I'm sorry, the sign of the fig tree, uh, once stripped of its uh, leaves, re, reborn. Or I'm sorry, reblooming. And that sign, uh, again, to repeat, I can't say it enough, is, is exclusively, primarily, if you will, but it, I would say exclusively for the church. So Israel, the sign of Israel, the blooming of the fig tree, uh, the fruit that comes in the fig tree, uh, that if that's for the church, the bride. The bride knows the sign of the wife, and the, and the wife knows the sign of the taken bride. As soon as the bride is taken, the wife knows it. And the wife is left behind. And yes, I, 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 I use that term intentionally. The wife of YHVH, when it recognizes that the bride has been taken, that the sign of the abducted bride has occurred, is, that uh, provokes Israel to jealousy. Right, Romans? Israel is going to know the bride has been abducted. They're going to know it. Now, who else knows it besides them? That's open for speculation, but I don't think very many. Israel's going to be known, going to know that they have been left and that they're now alone in a sea of nations and all of those nations have one focus and that's to kill the Jews. Exterminate the Jewish people. Therefore, a little break here. That was a lot of words in a row. This is the review part, right? That was all one sentence, I think. Wow. Therefore, as the sign of the rebirth of the nation of Israel is for the church, so then the sign of the taking of the church is for the nation of Israel. I know, I'm being repetitive and redundant. That's a teaching technique. And once I establish that, once I have that established, that's now going to be the prism through which the other pieces that are part of it are going to be viewed. 
the foundation of the building to be assembled, if you will, is assembled on the premise that the foundation is that these two signs are exclusively exclusively for uh, the other, and and uh, in fact, uh, uh, everything will fit based on that. It, it becomes a matter of just finding and placing everything in its correct location. You will know in Scripture. I, I said this at the end of the end of the. Uh, lecture last year, last week in the post game. Please have the highest view of Christ you have, you can get. As long as you have a high view of Christ, you will always fit the pieces together. If you have a low view of Christ, if you think Christ is, I don't know, ignorant of something or fearful of something, which is the same thing, which is sin. If you think he has power only occasionally, he's kind of Got a switch and on off switch. Sometimes he's God, sometimes he's not. You, know, that, you think he's emptied himself of his godhood. If you have that view, the Bible will be a it be a mystery to you the rest of your life. Having that the view of Christ and then evaluating all of Scripture with that view as the prism or the foundation is absolutely essential for any understanding, in my view. You've heard me say that thousands of times over the year. Well, the same thing happens to be here. Once you understand what the signs are and who the signs are for, then now you can go out and get the rest of the pieces and evaluate it uh, that way, and it will all fit for you. And when you notice that it all fits for you beautifully and makes sense, then now you're on the right track. And uh, Okay, so we began recently, we had a re-beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the rebeginning, as you know, with the pillar of salt, which is Luke seventeen thirty two, remember Lot's wife. So the pillar of salt is remember Lot's wife. I, I intentionally again mix those together. Remember Lot's wife is an amazing, complex mystery. If you think you've solved it. Start again. Because if you think you've solved it, and especially if you think you've solved it by reading somebody else who's solved it, set it aside, start again. You've got a lifetime of work to figure out, remember Lot's wife. This is God that said that, right? Remember Lot's wife, this complex mystery spreads out everywhere. It doesn't take you immediate it does take you immediately to the pillar of salt because that's what Lot's wife is designated as a pillar of salt. And once you get to the pillar of salt, now you have to find the other pillars, the most prominent as you remember, pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. But the other thing that's that you have to do when you start out pillar of salt and remember Lot's wife, you've got to look at this word that God uses. He says, remember. And that's amazing. Why does he say remember? Not only do I have to go connect all the pillars of salt. Break it down. I got to remember. I got to find the pillars. I got to figure out what salt is. And I've got to look at Lot's wife as to what she did and why she did it. Jesus Christ is the rememberer. That's who he is. He is the one who remembers. I'm going to read something. I get a lot of letters about different things you can imagine. And I'm answering a question that somebody sent me recently about God's Size more than anything else. Uh, I always ask the question about people when they tell me what God is or is not going to do. I always ask him, or her, or him, uh, is it because God is not able or God is not willing? Uh, I want to know which view you have because if you have either one of those, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Let me read to you. Uh, this is a Noadic covenant. What he says, and then you will be able to figure out what the question was that I was asked. It was somebody who was mourning the death of something or someone. So let me read it to you and you'll figure the question out. And if you don't, you can see me in the post game. This is what God says about himself at the Noadic Covenant. Genesis 9.15 And I will remember 
my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between me and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. For today, I just want you to figure out the question that I was asked, and then figure out uh, this. How much remembering is that? How many creatures, every living... I will remember the everlasting covenant between me and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. How many people is that? How many, how much flesh is that? How much does he have to remember? He's the rememberer. So when the rememberer tells you to remember, that's a pretty big deal. Notice I'm the use of the present tense by the I am. The I am always uses the present tense when he's saying something critical because he's in the present tense at all times. That's why he's the I am and we are not. The I am, he's the only one who is always in the present because he is in control of time. You know that. But listen to that again. The everlasting covenant, I, I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. He sees them as is. It's the same thing as I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sees them as is. He sees us as is as all, at all time. He never sees us as anything but is, again, outside of time as he is the only is which is the same as the I am. I wish he had said, I is. That would go over better, I think, in today's vernacular. But he says, I am. The Noadic covenant is an unconditional, unbreakable promise to remember from the one who remembers everything. Now, I know you're going to say, well, he forgets my sin. Well, his definition of forget and our definition of forget are not the same. Everlasting covenant is clearly a salvation reference. God uses everlasting covenant in the Bible 16 times. The first time he does it is with me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Right here. So this is the first time he uses everlasting covenant. The second time is at Genesis 17:7 when he's talking to Abraham about the spiritual seed of Abraham, uh, Romans 4:14 4, through 25, and the third is Hebrews 13:20, the ones that are redeemed by the blood of Christ. The point is, the one who remembers is telling Israel to remember, and that should startle you. Not just remember anything, remember Lot's wife. Of all the things Israel is supposed to remember when they're being uh, persecuted, he, he wants them to remember Lot's wife, which should make us ask some more questions. When we see that he wants you to remember Lot's wife, and he wants you to know that Lot's wife is a pillar of salt, and I got you off target, I, I made you go and look at all the pillars, I hope you did that. Now I want you to go look at all the salts, find out what salt is. What is salt in the Bible? Who is described as salt? Who is the salt? Who is we? Who is the Christians? They're the church. They're the bride. They're the sign of the taken bride, right? So, what is, what is Lot's wife? But before you run off and do that, which is very important, and I hope you did it, now you should go back and say to yourself, i got to go collect what? i got to collect all the remembers. If I asked you, where is the most significant, from our culture, the, the place where everybody, if I said remember, where would you go? Hmm? <laughs> I should be more specific. If I said remember something in the Bible, okay, some place where the word remember is used in the Bible, where would be the most likely place most people would go? Huh? Yeah, well, remembrance of me, thief on the cross. You know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's uh, Luke twenty-three forty-two. 
Remember me, he says, to the rememberer. He knows that the thief on the cross somehow has figured out that Christ is the rememberer because he says, remember me. It's not like Christ doesn't know millions and millions of people already, right? Billions of people. And this guy says, hey, remember me. He knows that remembering has something to do with salvation, too, by the way, almost immediately. Remember me. Save me. When you come into your kingdom, the thief says two profound theological truths there. He identifies Christ as the one who remembers, and that means that's the, he is the one who gave the uh, Noadic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and all, of, and all of those issues with regard to salvation. But he identifies Christ as the one who remembers, and he identifies Christ as the one who is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Remember me, you're the remember me, when you come into your kingdom. How's he doing with the deity of Christ so far? Pretty strong, wasn't he? Both are statements that Christ is creator God extraordinarily. Uh, supernatural clarity from a desperate dying thief. I hope I have such clarity. Now, once I've got that, I'm going to end up in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13, 14, 13, 22, 13, 30. Nehemiah says, remember me, oh my God. Very similar, by the way, to the thief on the cross. So it makes you wonder if the thief on the cross was going to his death with Nehemiah 13 in his mind because he reproduced it beautifully. So Nehemiah's, uh, remember me, oh my God, he does it three times, help us understand not just the thief on the cross, uh, but it also goes a long way in explaining the commandment given to Israel to remember the pillar of salt. Who is the pillar of salt again? A woman. Lot's wife. It's a pillar, and it's salt, and it's a woman. So it's pillar if it's strength, and salt if it's preservative. It's a, it's a strong preservative that's a woman. Remember Lot's wife. Anyway, from the pillar of salt, we went to the pillar of fire, right? And the pillar of cloud, so... We should. We should now. We're stuck right there forever. We've got this incredible thing, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's a pillar of fire or pillar of light, if you will, in the darkness. It is a lamp that shines so they can find out where they're going. How dark is dark over there before there is? That is dark. So I have a light source. It's amazing. Uh, in that deep, heavy darkness and um, so that is a pathway light, if you will. It's also a weapon system that protects them. So I have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Uh, there, it's a guide. Uh, um, we talked about how it's a Holy Spirit reference. It leads them, protects them, shelters them, overshadows them. Now, when I start getting into the pillar of fire and the pillar of light, uh, I've got to go immediately to Ezekiel 1. I gotta go there, 1, 15 through 28, because Ezekiel takes me inside the pillar of cloud. He actually tells you what's in there. He shows you that all Israel saw was a cloud or a light. Ezekiel got to go inside. He's not the only one who went inside, by the way. But he gives you this incredible description. He tells us uh, that Christ is in there. He says, Jesus Christ himself is sitting on the throne. There's a throne in there. There's cherubim in there. There's a tremendous amount of information going on. If you want to think of it as, uh, as God's Air Force One, go ahead. Because that's what it is. It's his transportation system when he comes. He flies in this. He doesn't need it to fly. He's God. But it's what he does. It's teaching us something about him. There's a throne and Christ sits on the throne within the pillar of cloud, Ezekiel 1.26. So, that once you know that, 
then you uh, uh, go off to find all the places where Jesus makes it obvious that he is the one who sits on the throne of heaven and he controls the creation, his creation. And that's what we did last week because that's something he clearly does at John 6:15 through 21, Matthew 14:22 through 33, and Mark 6:45 through 52, where in the darkness he is seen. So there's your pillar of light. He is controlling the weather. I, I can't be, I cannot be more uh, disrespectful of those who think humanity has the ability to control the weather, much less the climate. Uh, how arrogant of humanity. Little tiny itty bitty cockroaches talking about the entire uh, cosmological System of the of the earth, uh, uh, ecology, the weather, and the water transfers, the wind, the the temperature system that is in the the cleaning that it does, the intricacies that are in all of those facets, and somehow hairspray is going to destroy it. I, I just now that tells you how old I am because that was the first uh, launch of that. Jesus Christ controls the creation. And he controls, he's above the water uh, that are boiling, they're so, they're raging, and he ceases the winds uh, in, in uh, John 6, 15 through 21. And by the way, just as an aside here because I forgot it, we see the pillar of cloud fire. They're able to see Christ walking in the darkness. So how do they do that? Clearly he's lit up, which takes you to the pillar of fire. We see that pillar of cloud, pillar of fire at the transfiguration, Luke 9, 34 through 35. Uh, I probably will get to read that today. I hope I should. I've been making the argument that Christ allowed the disciples and the multitude that gathered glimpses into who he really is. And he did it at, at all kinds of places. He did it at uh, the transfiguration for the disciples, the apostles. That's probably the preeminent place in Scripture where they're able to see that he is the one who sits on the throne inside of the pillar of cloud. John also gets to see that at Revelation 1. It's described in Isaiah 6 who he really is. Obviously, at the transfiguration, he shines. He is light. That's the fire, the pillar of cloud. Uh, as you know, overshadows them at the transfiguration. So the pillar of cloud is there. Peter, John, and James, Moses, and Elijah. <coughs> a pillar of cloud. And each of those men, by the way, have tremendous symbolism attached. Uh, you need to know those five guys are there not because of some coincidence or happenstance. Why Peter, John, James, Moses, and Elijah? Almost every commentator that I read uh, sees why Moses and Elijah are present. They go prophets in the law, and they, they have two witnesses, and they do all of that, and they're pretty happy with themselves. But none of them notice why Peter's there. And Peter, by the way, how does he do? Not so good. Uh, we're back into the Simeon prophecy. You have to find every place Peter does something that's a little bit weird and put it together with Simeon the Cyrenian, Simeon uh, the, the son of the twelve tribes that is captured by Joseph and hidden, if you will, uh, uh, incarcerated or, or locked up. Uh, the prophet Simeon. Put all your Simeons together, but don't leave out Simeon, Simon Peter, Simeon Peter, because at the transfiguration he does something pretty amazing in the sense that uh, that's a piece of information we'll want to investigate. Uh, he wants to build stuff. Doesn't he? He does lots of things, Peter does. He tells Christ what to do a lot. It doesn't go well for him. So, understand that, that he is part of a prophecy of Israel. It's very, very important. Finally, uh, Peter is extraordinarily uh, blessed at the end of the book of John. But not just Peter there. We have uh, James and John. And who are they? Very few people give any attention to James and John. Who are they? They, they? Christ names them. What's he named them? He calls them the sons of thunder. What's that mean? And that's what he calls them. And they want to kill everybody, by the way. They're, now that they got, now that they fit, let's, let's rain fire and kill those people. Uh, 
they have a very long phase of idiocy, just like the rest of us. Peter wants to cut people's heads off. These guys are trying to kill anybody that they don't like. He calls them the son of thunder, the sons of thunder. And that's God himself. God himself is placing that name on them. And it must, therefore, have unimaginable meaning. What was Christ saying with the sons of thunder? Why are the sons of thunder, as Simeon, Peter, Moses, and Elijah at the transfiguration? Uh, there's something else for us to solve, the question of why Peter, James, and John. And uh, just so you know, just in case you think they're not applicable to you, in Galatians 2.9, Peter and John are called... Pillars, and the pillar of cloud is at the transfiguration. That would make sense. They are pillars of the bride, by the way. We call that coincidental. Except there are no coincidences. The pillar of cloud hovered above Peter, James, and John, and Peter, James, and John entered into the pillar of cloud fire. Luke 9.34. Let's go look, read that. It's a good place to fit it in, even though I didn't intend to do it. I think you will like to know it. And this takes you back now to Ezekiel. We'll just start. Yeah, let's see. Let's go, go all the way here. I'll start at 32. But with Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, Who's with him? The the sons of thunder. Sometimes I think that it's almost sarcasm. It's not, of course. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. So they now see what? The Shekinah glory of God. So now they know that Christ is who? They saw that he's God. You would think that would have impacted them a lot more than it did. But they, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, Moses and Elijah. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Okay. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said that because he's an idiot. That's what it says, not knowing what he said. What is he saying? We need to make three temples. We have a temple for you, a temple for Moses, and a temple for Elisha. How's God with that? What has he done with God? Who gets the biggest temple? They all the same size? How doctrinally ignorant is that? Why, that just seems to be exactly what the church is doing today. The degradation of the deity of Christ, right? While he was saying this, while Peter is saying foolish things, remember, Peter comes out of it in an amazing way. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. There's your cloud. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. They went inside the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things they had seen. They went in and saw the cherubim. They saw the throne. They saw it all. It's an extraordinary experience. So go read Ezekiel 1. They saw Ezekiel 1. Next week we'll probably do No, not next week. John, by the way, saw it again in Revelation 1, 10 through 18. He saw it twice. How much fear of death do you have after you see that? Twice. That explains a lot about the Apostle John. Anyway, we've been asking the familiar question that deals with all of this quite a bit lately. Uh, We've been asking, uh, what did the people exactly see? Because I'm, I'm here, right, in Mark. I'm trying to put the donkey together with the inspection of the temple and the expe- inspection of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple and the John the Baptist question and then with the parable of the vineyard and, and then to the uh, cornerstone of Psalm 118 and then Caesar's coin image uh, contrasted with the image of God, Genesis 126. That's what I'm doing as I get back to uh, the sign of the taken bride. I think it has something to do with all of that, obviously. 
And I've been asking all the time, when Christ rode the donkey in, what exactly did the people see? Every aspect of it. And if I'm right, and that's a newborn donkey, how does one ride a newborn donkey? How does that all fit? What did they see? What did the people exactly see with the, uh, the complement of the donkey? Because if you go to John, you see riding the donkey is attached to the resurrection of Lazarus. So not only think about what did they see when they saw the donkey being ridden by Christ. Christ hovering over the donkey. Uh, Exodus 13, 30, 13. Uh, overshadowing the donkey. Because you clearly, uh, if you have, if I'm correct, why do I say that? If that's a newborn donkey, full, and the likelihood it's overwhelming that it is because of the mare and the weaning aspect. What did people see? And then what, all of it. And then what did they see exactly when Lazarus wrapped very tightly in death coverings? He's wrapped in his death garments, right? His fig leaves. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm going from death coverings, death garments, and fig leaves. When I have, it's all the same thing. When, when he comes out of that tomb wrapped in those death garments, uh, what did they see? How much? What really happened? Get a picture in your mind. We discussed last week. He can't walk. He can't breathe. He can't see. He can't move. How did he come out? How is this sign? Why did John put this sign and the riding of the donkey together, essentially? What did the multitude exactly see when Jesus Christ was above the donkey foal. Let me repeat that. What exactly in totality did the disciples see that dark night when Christ was above the raging waters? I have Christ above, Christ above, Christ above, Lazarus coming out. Obviously, I'm insisting on linking the, the resurrection of Lazarus and the riding into Jerusalem on the donkey foal with that night that Christ was above the raging waters, with the pillar of cloud, with the pillar of, of water, therefore to the pillar of salt, therefore to remember Lot's wife. Do you follow me so far? If you do, you're becoming weird. And anyway, I'm also uh, ultimately connecting it to the transfiguration and the ascension of Christ. I'm accumulating everything I can that demonstrates Jesus Christ's authority over his governing laws. What is required to ascend? I'm going to ascend. What do I have to do? What forces do I have to have authority over to ascend? So, I'm asking... Again, what specifically did they see? They watched him ascend for a long time. Why did he go? He goes up really slow, and as he goes up, he comes down really slow when he comes down. Why? What's he saying by that? Why didn't he just disappear? He doesn't. Slowly he ascends. Ask why? You just accept it? What's the meaning of it? You just say, well, he did it. There is no meaning. Who is he again? He's God. What is he always doing? He's teaching you a profound truth at all times. What is the truth of the walking on the water, the riding of the foal, the ascension of Christ? What is the, the, the lesson there? The pillar of cloud, to repeat, is announcing the presence of the Lord God of creation and it overshadows, which is the same as it envelops. So God, therefore, when God is overshadowing as the pillar of cloud, if you replace, and the pillar of cloud is God's presence, right? Jesus Christ is God's presence personified. I mean, you can't get any more of God's presence than Jesus Christ. If he is on top of a foal, then he is enveloping the foal. He's overshadowing it, just like the pillar of cloud. So God is overshadowing a donkey foal. And therefore, he, the cloud, when, when Peter, James, and John go inside of it, they have become enveloped. What's it mean to be enveloped by God? Good or bad? I expect the pillar of cloud will come and do something. I think that we will do what? 
When I say we, I mean us. I'm predicting something for you. You're going to go inside the pillar of cloud. You're going to see what's in there. All of us will. When will we do it? Yeah, we'll do it at the sign of the taken bride, or the taking of the bride, or the abduction of the bride. I'm going to make the case, I believe, uh, convincingly, that the pillar of cloud will come to abduct the church, because who's there? That's the bridegroom. He's on the throne, right? That's what he does. Who's going to see it? Who's going to know what they're seeing? I'm going to have witnesses. Who are the witnesses? Who's going to see the pillar of cloud come? Who's going to know what the pillar of cloud is? Okay, before I get too far ahead, there is this unmistakable connection between the resurrection of Lazarus and Christ above the donkey fold. In case that is or overshadowing or enveloping the donkey fold. In case that's not completely clear, we should attempt to make it so. Um, let's see. Let me reverse the amazing, holy, platinum dry erase board model. Look at that. Is that incredible? Is that miraculous? No, it's not. That's about $100 or so. No, it's more than that. Dave had to fix it. I know that. Because the amazing platinum board broke. If Lazarus' resurrection is in fact inseparable from the writing of the donkey fold. So my premise is, is that Lazarus equals donkey fold. In some way. Or Lazarus plus donkey fold equals something. So in other words, I take Lazarus' resurrection, I add it to the donkey foal, and that, that results in the entry into Jerusalem. If they are in fact inseparable, which I submit is beyond obvious, without dispute, controversy, then Lazarus' resurrection must fit into, on the other side, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 11 and Mark 12. All of it, all of those things that I mentioned. The inspection of the fig tree, the inspection of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, the uh, removing of the money changers, the vineyard parable, the Psalm 118 rejected cornerstone, the Psalm 118 Hosanna, God's image, Caesar's image, all of that has to be, has to have something to do with Lazarus and the donkey foal. And it's probably easiest, uh, to start this with who is Lazarus the most like in the Bible? If I'm going to find an Old Testament compliment to John 11, where would I go? If Lazarus is somebody, who is he? Lazarus equals who? Who else is wrapped tightly in death clothes and has to have them removed? Who else? And if I said death clothes is the same as fig leaves, then who else is just like Lazarus? Adam is. They have a terrific relationship. Because how many days was Lazarus in the tomb with his death clothes on before Christ came and took him out of death? Lazarus is in there four days, right? How many days is Adam? I'm going to tell you right now, four days. I have the four days and the four days. They might not be apparent to you right off the bat. But, uh, this is made, by the way, quite a few people, me among them, consider that the fool is how old? Well, it would seem logical to me because uh, I would guess, I know it's a young fool. I've got this four days of Lazarus, and I get probably a four-day-old foal. It fits the best for the explanation. And I have the four days of Adam. Do you know what the four days of Adam are? Uh, and again, I will, I will concede that the, uh, it's undeterminable that the, the foal is four days old, but I'm trying to be logical. But it's uh, nonetheless uh, potentially intriguing. Let's set that aside. Note that Adam had his fig leaves removed by God. Lazarus has his death clothing, death covering, 
So Adam has his fig covering removed by God. Lazarus has his death covering removed by God. Adam needed a lamb's blood. I had two lambs sacrificed for Adam, right? One for Adam, one for Eve. He needed the blood of a lamb, the foal. As you know, Exodus 13.13 has to have the blood of a lamb. So look at what I've got really close now. I've got the four days of Adam, the four days of Lazarus. I have the lamb's blood poured over uh, Adam. I have the lamb's blood on top of overshadowing the foal. So now I've connected the foal immediately to Adam, and I have Adam and Lazarus both having their death coverings removed by Christ, right? The donkey foal requires a lamb's blood substitute covering. And the Passover, this is all happening on Passover. So who's riding the donkey foal? The Passover lamb is doing it. The Passover lamb of God who is God, who also insists, by the way, on a four-day period, doesn't he? So if I the Passover lamb, Passover lamb also has a four-day period. Exodus 12, 3 through 6. The Passover lamb who insists on a four-day period, as the lamb has to be brought into the home and it stays there for four days before it's slain. Lazarus is in the tomb. He needs the blood of the lamb to be resurrected. And he is in the tomb in his death coverings for four days. Huh? So far with me in all of that? Everybody's on the bus. Don't have to back up. Let me, do I have, I don't think I ever cover, let me explain to you. What are the four days, um, I'll do it here in a minute, you'll get it. Uh, how many of you are having trouble with the one thing with regard to Adam? Second Peter 3.8 says, don't forget one thing. You've got you to remember one thing, Peter says. If you, almost like, just know one thing. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise to return. A day is what? A thousand years. A thousand years is a day. That's one. All you got to do to pass the test is know one thing. Second Peter, what? Three eight, I think it is. So, how many days does Adam have before Christ comes? Four thousand years, four days. The, the, the Jews knew that Christ was going to come on the fourth day. The Messiah was going to come on the fourth day. If you read their, uh, read their writings, they can't figure out where the Messiah was. He was supposed to be here on the fourth day. He should have come 4,000 years from the creation of Adam. And they didn't see him. Where is he? It's one of their questions in their, in their uh, commentary writings. Where is the Messiah? Well, he obviously came. They didn't say. Christ is following his Passover pattern and his betrothal pattern. So, Lazarus and Adam, Adam and the donkey foal, basic mathematic principles, right? If Lazarus equals Adam's with regard to the coverings, and Lazarus and Adam's both, Adam have this four-day thing, then I, then somehow Lazarus now is going to, by transitive property, basic mathematics, Lazarus is going to be equal to the foal because I can connect the foal to Adam, Adam with the blood of the lamb and the blood of the lamb in the four days and the four days as well. So Lazarus now is connected to the donkey foal. Now, are they the same or are they additive? Do I add them together to get something? I'm going to make the case that I add them together. Um, so, Christ waits for four days before raising Lazarus. Obviously, as soon as he does that, everybody knows that this is a Passover reference because of the Passover lamb. And everybody would know that Adam also has a four-day uh, uh, reference to him as well. The Jews would know it they would immediately recognize it again as having a relationship to the Passover ordinances in Exodus and Numbers. Four days first and foremost is a Passover-based concept. It's not surprising that God came and that God added humanity, that Christ descended to his fallen creation 4,000 years from Adam's creation. 
or four days. One thing. Now, I think it's wise to ask a bunch of questions about Lazarus. All of this to ask a bunch of questions. Lazarus is in the tomb. He comes out. He's completely wrapped, immobile. He's soaked in 500 pounds, if typical, of burial spices. And he's like, it's, it's a caked on covering. There he's coming out that way. Why? Do you ever ask why? Does he have to come out that way? Why this requirement that Lazarus come out of the tomb wrapped up tight as a drum, covered in heavy wrappings, They're almost like plaster of Paris, but twice as strong. Think super glue. He's encapsulated into this burial clothing, this death clothing that's on him. Why? Does God, God pull him out of the tomb, does God, duh, have the capability, duh, to bring Lazarus out of the tomb, duh, free of his death clothes, duh. But he doesn't. It's the same thing as why does he ascend slowly? Is he just slow? Can't go fast? It's on a winch? 12 volt battery? Attached to a cloud? And just somehow it's just not going very fast? Does Christ, when he ascends, does he go into the pillar of cloud? What do you think? There's this thing. He likes that pillar of cloud. It belongs to him. His guys are in there, if you want to think of it that way. They come for him all the time. Why does he go so slow? Why does Lazarus come out of the tomb covered in burial death clothes? How did it happen? What You imagine to me, i got a tomb. He, the, i got a rock with a seal on it. i got him inside. Waits four days. He comes out of the tomb. How big a tomb is it? Can you walk in there? Or is it a small tomb? What do you think? Small tomb with, say, a rock about the size of a, of a Volkswagen in front of it. And sealed up tight. They don't want what to get there. He has to have a little bit of money, doesn't he? Not everybody can afford a tomb like that. Maybe it's just a small rock the size of a, of a recliner. And he's behind there. How do I get him out of there where everybody sees him? Why did the multitude throw their clothes? So here's his reference of clothing. As Christ is riding the donkey foal, they throw their clothes before him. Why did the disciples place their clothes on the donkey foal? What does this have to do with Lazarus in his burial clothes coming out of the tomb? Why again was Lazarus still encased in his death garments? All of those questions are the same question. Do you understand that? The throwing of the clothing, the placing of the clothing, and Lazarus still in his death garment? Same question. Now break it down into little smaller pieces to help you. Jesus Christ purposed to bring God, Creator, Lord God Almighty, the I is, the I am, Purpose to bring Lazarus out of the tomb with his death wrapping still intact. He didn't bring him out without him. He could have. He didn't. Why? What's he doing here? Jesus Christ, again, could have pulled him out through the clothes, but he does not. Instead, he commands people to do stuff. He says, cut Lazarus loose. Cut him off of him. Get him out of those things. Does he, God need help? How do they get him out? I mean, how, what do you got to do to get those burial cloths off of him? He's stuck in there. How, by the way, what's he look like? I mean, I got a, I got essentially a mummy, don't I? Coming out of a tomb. Is he horizontal? Is he vertical? 
Did he drag him out with a rope? Did he float him out? Did they see a body floating in the air? What did they see? You're there. What did you see? God also commanded them, not only did they have to cut him out, they had to, they had to remove the stone. Does he need help? Christ can't move the stone himself. Obviously, Christ does not want to move the stone himself. He wants somebody else to move the stone. Why? He doesn't want to take the burial cloths off of Lazarus. He wants somebody else to do it. Why? Because he does it up here with Adam. He does it with surrogates, if you will. Here. What's the difference? One, there was nobody else to get him off of Adam. That's your first. And you can't take him off yourself. Really, so, I submit the reasons are the same, by the way. Remove the stone, remove the death wrap, remove the fig leaves, curse the fig tree. All of those are the same subject. And, and, and so the question because, becomes this. Are the them in John 11, 30, 44, the same them? What I mean by that is the guys that took the rock away and cut the cloth off of him, are those the same guys? And if so, why those guys? I think you can make the case they are the same guys. Or the same women, whoever did the burial for him. Same people that wrapped him, unwrapped him. Same people that sealed the tomb, unsealed the tomb. Why did he do that? Who are the them? How does anybody know this is Lazarus? They're at the tomb of Lazarus. But isn't it possible just to go with a little conspiracy theory? How am I doing for time to the I have a whole minute. Good. We could take a, the average conspiracy theory that the, the disciples went there and pulled Lazarus out of the tomb and put somebody else in the tomb, wrapped him up in burial clothes, by the way, 500 pounds, and said, hey, we need a volunteer to pretend to be Lazarus. How about you, Fred? And we're going to stick you in this tomb 15 minutes before Christ gets here. We'll cut a little hole. Maybe they won't see it. You'll have a... A, a, a stick to breathe out of. By the way, he's going to float you out if that's okay with you. Is that your view? Many people have the view that this is all faked. Who do you think had that view, first and foremost? The Pharisees. Thank you for attending, young lady, and staying awake all the way to here. <laughs> Who covered him? He's covered by hand and foot, John eleven forty four. Who covered him? Who sealed the tomb? Who knew this was Lazarus when he came out? Because the people that covered him and the people that sealed the tomb knew that the seal was still there and they also knew that the clothing that they put on him was the clothing they put on him. Who are those people? Now consider the most obvious of the obvious questions. Did the resurrection resurrected Lazarus look like the pre-resurrected Lazarus. Let me put it this way. Did the resurrected Lazarus, when they cut him out of the clothes, look like the sick and dying Lazarus that went into the clothes? Jesus Christ, Creator God, restores Lazarus to temporal physical life. Lazarus dies twice. How good a job does he do? Does he? If I go into the burial ground looking like this, this isn't good. Christ happens to come down and say, I'm going to pull him out for a couple of years before somebody kills him again. And by the way, the Pharisees were hunting Lazarus with everything they had. I'm going to pull him out. Am I going to look like this? How good a job did Christ do on Lazarus? This is God. Compare the pre-restored Lazarus that died with the post-restored Lazarus. I want to know about the skin, the hair, the muscle tone, the intellect, the age, the vitality. Are they the same? Remember, a great many Jews, John 12, 9, came to see Lazarus because he was incredible. And those are the same people that saw the donkey fall. And that was incredible. They had back-to-back unbelievable, incredible things to look at. And they were stunned. They were shocked. And the Pharisees, again, desperate to kill Lazarus, John 12:10, because the sign of the resurrected Lazarus was incomprehensible. No one could grasp what Christ did. What did the great multitude there see? 
How did they know this was Lazarus? And everyone knew this was Lazarus. They came from miles to see him. Maybe a hundred thousand people to come and see Lazarus. How did they know he was Lazarus? I make the case that Lazarus is exactly like the healed lepers. Remember, nobody ever healed a leper until Christ came. And I think that Lazarus was the same. Imagine a a leper. I can barely talk today. Imagine a leper. What does leprosy, that type of leprosy do? It is horribly disfiguring. Your ears and nose and fingers, extremities gone. Just absolutely mangled. Catastrophic physical destruction. And those people were instantly healed of leprosy by Christ by the thousands. It's never happened before. How good a job did he do? What did they look like? Who knows who they are? They've had leprosy for years. Who can recognize them? They're completely what? Restored. This isn't your Benny Hinn healing joke. This is the real thing here. What did they look like? Who knows who they are? How do they prove who they are? Did the Pharisee, because they have to have the Leviticus 14 cleansing leper thing, right? The ceremony of the two birds, one in a vessel killed in water, the other one released. Do the Pharisees know who they are? Yeah, because they came back wanting their stuff back. Did the Pharisees lie? That's what Pharisees do. How did Lazarus prove he was Lazarus? He didn't look like Lazarus. So to recap, I got a, well he did, but not really. A covered Lazarus is pulled, let me put it this way, a covered Lazarus is translated, how's that? Out of a sealed tomb with a loud voice. So somebody comes out of the tomb with a loud voice. How loud is loud? Where else does that happen? Who else comes out of tombs with loud voices? That's right, the sign of the taken bride, right? Before the very ones who covered Lazarus hand and foot and sealed him into the tomb, he brings him out. It's a sign for those people to see. And the tomb sealers and the body wrappers had to reverse what they had done. They had to unseal and unwrap. And when they had done this, Lazarus was revealed. And what did he look like? How good a shape is he in? Talking automobile restoration. Just put it in that analogy. I'll give you a rusted up 62 Buick, in this case a 53 Plymouth, not so good. And and it gets restored by God. How good a job does he do? How updated am I? And they were shocked when they saw Lazarus. By the way, did they have a mirror? Hey, Laz, here's a mirror. Take a look at what's happened to you. Did Lazarus know what he looked like? How did he prove who he was? How are you going to prove who you are when this happens to you on a much higher level? Because this is a temporal. The next time this happens is eternal. How are we going to identify each other? I am not going to look like this. How are you going to know it's me? I have a lab. Beautiful lab, Abigail. She's a sweetheart. I'm going to know it's her. How am I going to know? Is she going to look like a lab? Probably not. That's man's genetic modifications. But I'm going to know her and she's going to know me. How are we going to do it? How am I going to know you? What did the multitude see? What's interesting in all of this, I don't have time to flip it because Terry will get mad. The vineyard has no fruit. Because it's got to fit to the vineyard, right? Isn't that interesting that the vineyard had no fruit? Had no fruit until the owner's son, until Jesus God came. Now there's all kinds of fruit. Thousands and thousands and thousands of fruit people wandering around. It's everywhere. Exploding in fruit now, the vineyard is. And what are the tenant farmers trying to do to stop it? 
They spend all their time trying to destroy the fruit. So, next week, no, not next week, the week after this, did the Pharisees kill, did the Pharisees kill every healed leper that came to them that they could? Would it be in their best interest to kill the healed lepers? They tried to kill Lazarus as the musicians come forward in their appropriate walking formation, alphabetical, based on height, hair color, hair loss, all of those things that are religious, ceremonial, and to be. Just consider, what did those Pharisees do to every one of those healed lepers if they could get them? How long before word got out, hey, they're killing the healed lepers. They're trying to kill Lazarus. They're trying to kill God, for goodness sakes. They're certainly going to take on the lepers, aren't they? A couple weeks, we'll continue down this road. Isn't this fun? Let's rise. Be dismissed. No, some of you rose too quickly.